Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. This morning, we're going to pick back up through the book of Genesis. So if you've been with us for any time, uh, you know that we've been walking through the book of Genesis. And so we find ourselves this morning uh, at the end of Genesis chapter 20 or chapter 32. Darren preached the the first part of chapter 32 prior to Advent, and now I'm going to pick it back up. And to help us kind of get our arms around where we are and what we're doing, I'm going to do a brief review of how we get to this amazingly powerful and amazingly rich text that we find uh, at the end of chapter 32. Uh, But have you ever been brought to the end of yourself? where you realize that you really had no answers, that you had no schemes to get you out of your situation. You simply realize, like, for the first time, like, oh, my gosh, I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not cunning enough. And all I can do is wait, hope, and trust in something or someone to come through for me. I think as we go through life with varying degrees of intensity, We have multiple experiences like this. Each one is like this this line of demarcation where there was our life before this, and then there was our life after this. The first time that I really remember coming to this was when I was sitting at my dad's bedside, knowing this will be the last time I ever speak to my father before he passed away. That's a line that has changed me forever. As we continue Through Genesis, we're going to see that Jacob finds himself in a situation like this. And through it, God teaches him an incredible, life-altering lesson that is not just for him, but it's for every single one of us in this room. I'm going to be honest. Today, we will discuss some things that may hit close to home for some of you. They may cause you to reflect deeply about your life and where your trust is really placed. My prayer is we don't run from this, but we allow ourselves to embrace it, to soak in it, and not just now, but for as long as we need to. The Lord can produce in us what He wants for His glory and our good if we don't try to rush the process. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read... Genesis chapter 32, and I'm gonna, we're going to specifically read verses 22 to 32. So we're going to read the end of it, and then I'm going to go back and give a quick review, and then we'll look at these 10 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 22. It says, The same night he, meaning Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. Then he said, let me go, for day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? 
And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose on him as he passed, Penuel limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. So if we go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 32, we read this. It says that Jacob went on his way. So to refresh our memory, where we find ourselves in, at, at what we just read, Jacob's on a journey to go home. To refresh our memory, Jacob left his father Isaac and the land of Canaan 20 years prior to this because of his relationship with his brother Esau. Jacob had to flee his mother's home. Is that me? <laughs> no worries. Um, just want to make sure. Jacob fled his mother's homeland and had to live with his uncle Laban. While there, Jacob married two of Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel. They had 11 sons and one daughter. Jacob and Laban, if you remember, they had this real tumultuous relationship. Jacob, while there, amassed great wealth at Laban's expense. And behind it all, we see that God was working to bless Jacob. But Jacob still had to flee from his father-in-law Laban, who grew angry with Jacob because of how much wealth he had amassed. And at the end of chapter 31, we see... Finally, both Jacob and Laban, they enter into this peace agreement because God had intervened and said, Laban, don't touch him, he's mine. Laban returned to his home, and Jacob was now able to head back to the promised land, to the land of his father, the land of Canaan. This is what is meant when it says Jacob was on his way. He is on his way back to the land of Canaan, back to his father, back to the land that God had promised to give Jacob and his descendants. Throughout chapter 32, Jacob is on the border of this promised land at the Jabbok River. So you cross it and you now enter into that promised land. And as Jacob is approaching this river, we read that the angels of God met him and were encamped around him. This is a mysterious moment, but I think it's not too much of a leap to say that this is meant to show Jacob that God is with him and that God is protecting him. However, as Jacob nears Canaan, he knows he's going to have to meet his brother Esau, who hates him. And the last time Jacob saw his brother, his brother said, I'm going to murder you because you have stolen everything from me. The very brother he took advantage of by robbing him of his birthright and cheated by taking the blessing from their father. And because of this, Jacob wants to, or Esau wants to kill him. So verse 3 says that Jacob sends these messengers on ahead to Esau to prepare him, to kind of soften him. But when they return, these messengers of Jacob come back with some bad news. They're like, hey man, uh, Esau's on his way and he's got 400 men with him. Now just to give a little bit of context, 400 men was the size of a standard militia at the time. 
causing Jacob, verse 32, I'm sorry, chapter 32, verse 7 says, to be greatly afraid and distressed. Don't lose that. Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed. And in verses 7 to 23 of chapter 32, we see that Jacob's great fear and distress caused him to kind of do two things, to scheme and to pray, but mostly just scheme. But as Darren said, that doesn't mean he's necessarily doing something wrong. He's kind of freaking out. This is the dude that's bigger than me. He's stronger than me. He wants to kill me. And so what we see is he, well, the first thing that he does is Esau divides his camp into two, thinking if Esau attacks one, the other one can flee. Then he prayed. He prayed a very rich and real prayer that's found in verses 9 to 12. And it's the first recorded prayer in Genesis. It is a prayer that our prayers can be modeled after. Jacob, in this prayer, he first recognizes the personal and covenantal nature of God. By praying, God of Abraham and my father Isaac, he calls him Lord or Yahweh. Recalling, he recalls the command and the provision and the promise that God had given. And then he confessed his need of God's grace and protection with incredible humility. But after Jacob finished his prayer, he immediately goes back to his planning. <laughs> Jacob is a man of faith. God did pass his covenant promise on to Jacob in chapter 28. And the events during his exile at his father-in-law's house have worked to change him. He's not the same man he was when he left Canaan 20 years earlier. We see this by his prayer. But there is also still a lot of Jacob in Jacob. Still a lot about his life causing him to continue kind of planning and scheming for his own benefit and protection. I love what Pastor George Mueller uh, was asked. What is the most important part of prayer? And this was his answer. It's the first 15 minutes after I pray are the most important part of prayer. And how true is that? Because what we see is after praying, Jacob organized an elaborate gift. <laughs> this is the first thing he did. He prays, and then he immediately goes back to his planning. And, he, and he, he builds this gift that is really fit for a king to try to appease his brother. He's trying to buy him off. Moving from prayer to relying kind of on his own plans. And the gift that he organizes is enormous. It's organized like a parade. There's this section, then there's this section, then there's this section. It's calculated. Each part, each one that was the head of a section, one of his servants, had a rehearsed speech to give to Esau about why he shouldn't want to kill his brother. Jacob is doing everything he can to cause Esau to accept him, but at the same time, he's doing everything he can to protect himself. He's sending messengers. He's putting half of his camp in danger. He's having multiple droves of animals on his way. And we will see he even puts his own family, between his immediate family, between him and Esau. Let's be honest. Right now in that moment, Jacob isn't entirely seen as the most faithful <laughs> God follower. As we approach verse 22, though, despite all of his plans, despite all of his schemes, he is left to endure a sleepless night. Can you see him? Can you relate to him? Jacob is almost frantic in his distress and his fear. 
wanting to do anything to alleviate it, but not really ever face it. And at the end of the day, now even sleep escapes him. We've all been there, haven't we? We may not be in the same situation, but we've all faced daunting moments, haven't we? Financial hardship, relationship troubles, mourning the death of a loved one, battling depression or anxiety, facing way too much to do in way too little time. The, the, the list is almost never-ending. We all have moments where the weight of the world seems to be on our shoulders, and we frantically try to overcome at all. And it seems, especially at night, the mind is especially active. We scheme, we pray, we organize, we plan, we fret, we seek to control the situation and those around us. We work tireless, tirelessly. We all have sleepless nights. This chapter is in no way saying that planning and organizing and working hard and certainly prayer are bad or even sinful. But there is a broader lesson to be learned in what happens between or with Jacob. And that is who or what do we ultimately trust? And is that trustworthy? And here is where Jacob comes into the fight of his life. And we do as well. See, Jacob tries one more scheme. In the night, he leaves camp with his wives, their servants, and their children, and they cross the Jabbok, and he sends his wife and his children and, their, and, their, and, and his servants on ahead. So now he is left completely alone by himself. For the first time, Jacob is truly empty-handed. He is surrounded by no family, no servants, none of what he owns. Instead, he is surrounded by the darkness of the night, left alone with his fear and his distress and the racing thoughts of meeting Esau in the morning. And in verse 23, we read about a mysterious man who comes and wrestles with Jacob. The term wrestle here literally means kick up dust. This is not a casual grappling, ladies and gentlemen. They are locked in intense combat with the mysterious man being the aggressor towards Jacob. Or as, you know, my son Aiden was telling me all week, you get to preach the first WrestleMania. <laughs> but this mysterious man is the aggressor. You can almost feel the drama in the text. Who is this man? The darkness is shrouding him in mystery. Is this Esau? Has Esau come? to wrestle with him. Well, we learn by the end that this mysterious man who's the aggressor in wrestling with Jacob is God himself. It's God in human form. Pastor and theologian John Gill wrote this in his commentary, and it's up here, I think it's really great. The man was no doubt, this mysterious man was no doubt the son of God in human form who frequently appeared in it as a token and pledge of his future incarnation. And this wrestling was real. And it was corporal, I mean bodily, on the part of both. The man took a hold of Jacob, and he took a hold of the man, and they strove and they struggled together for victory, as wrestlers do. And on Jacob's part, it was also mental and spiritual and signified his fervent striving with God in prayer. 
Jacob is at a crossroads of his life. He is alone. He is distressed. He is fearing greatly his encounter with Esau. But yet there was a faith in him as demonstrated by his prayer. But where does Jacob ultimately stand? As a man of faith or as a man of the flesh? As a depender on his own plans or his God? Was his prayer just a scheme among other plans or the very bedrock of his existence? Into this context, God comes and wrestles with Jacob. Not for his own benefit, but for Jacob's benefit. But how? Why would God come to Jacob like this and wrestle with him until the break of day? Fundamentally, this is a lesson about God's rich grace. Even though God is the aggressor, he is the gracious one desiring to produce something marvelous in his chosen servant. But where do we see the grace? Number one, we see grace in God's coming to Jacob. He could have left Jacob alone to wallow in his fear and distress. But yet God is near to his people, actively involved, keeping his promises, providing their needs and protecting them. And God was willing to come to Jacob in his most darkest moment. Number two, we see God's grace in his patience. He wrestles with Jacob until daybreak allowing the lesson to take root. The most beneficial lessons in life are not the ones we learn in an instant moment, but they're the ones that take, the, that take time so they change us from the inside out. Number three, we see grace in God's gentleness. Had God come to destroy Jacob, he would have done so in a moment. This great power is shown why as Jacob is striving with this man, this power of God is seen in the moment where he just touches his hip and he dislocates his hip. But God, but God shows gentleness to him. Up until that moment, what we see God doing is the Lord is condescending, engaging Jacob throughout the night. As I think about this, I can't think about the times when I would wrestle with my kids. Now, if you know my boys, I don't wrestle with them anymore. But I used to, and I was dominant. Because <laughs> dads, you got to dominate your kids, right? As long as you can. I did not wrestle with them for their harm, but for their good. And I was not interested in defeating them, but to help them learn that they can trust me and how far they can go. Now, don't get me wrong. There were moments, important moments, mind you, where I would have to remind them who was in control with the display of ultimate dad power. You know that throwing them on the bed without mercy, picking them up with one hand like King Kong, tickling them without mercy might have been my favorite. But what is, but, but what is God's intention? What could, what could the intended outcome possibly be for Jacob here? I think English Bible teacher A.W. Pink, someone we've referenced a few times throughout the Genesis series, gives some enlightful, or insightful things about this. We're going to have two quotes from him today. Listen to what he says here. He says, what was God's intention? It was to reduce Jacob to a sense of his nothingness, to cause him to see what a poor, helpless, and worthless creature he was. It was to teach us through him 
the all-important lesson that in recognized weakness lies our strength. Boy, is that not an American message. But that is a biblical message. In our recognized weakness lies our strength. How can this be? How can that be? There's a lot of Christian teaching out there that would deny this. And that's garbage. Don't listen to it. How are we strong when we are brought to nothing? Because when we are weak and brought to the end of ourselves, all we have is faith. And through faith, God moves in power for his glory and our good. If God was not the teacher of this lesson, this would be a very cruel moment indeed. But since God is the teacher, it is a lesson of immense grace. Think about it for a minute. What good would it be for Jacob to continue trusting in his own strength, his own plans, or his own wisdom? To believe he was his own protector if God is in fact God. If God is God, the greatest lesson anyone could ever learn is realizing that we are ultimately nothing before him. Our strength is laughable compared to the strength of God. For God not to cause us to completely trust in him would not be good, it would be evil. But God is good. And out of that goodness, he wrestles with Jacob to bring him to nothing, to cause him to recognize his greatest strength will be in surrender and weakness. A.W. Pink goes on. He says, one of the principal designs of our gracious Heavenly Father in ordering our path, in the appointing of our testing and trials, in the discipline of His love is to bring us to the end of ourselves, to show us our own powerlessness, to teach us to have no confidence in the flesh that His strength may be perfected in our conscience, conscious and realized weakness. This is why the Lord came to wrestle with Jacob, to bring him to the end of himself for his good. If Jacob and all who would descend from him are to truly be God's people, they must realize their complete dependence on their covenant-keeping God to fulfill every promise he's given, to provide everything they need, and that he will ultimately be the protector from our enemies, for him to be truly their God. God's timing for this lesson, it couldn't have been better. It came at Jacob's darkest moment. He was facing his greatest fear, almost frantic to resolve his situation with Esau. But the same God to whom he prayed earlier is now engaged with him in the match of his life. Jacob thought his greatest issue was with Esau. But God came to show him it was actually with his maker. This is critical for us to understand. The temptations we deeply struggle with. Those things which cause the greatest fear and distress. Those people who have hurt us the most, we simply, that we just cannot forgive them out of fear. They won't get what we think they deserve. The shame of our past we deeply try to hide, run from, or overcome. Those things which keep us up at night. Whatever our gravest issue we think 
is, it is really not about that thing. Our issue is with God himself. Do we trust him? Will we rest in him? Or to continue to rely on our own power, which has only brought us sleepless nights and frantic moments. It is through our struggle with these things that the Lord wrestles with us. Like Jacob, he comes to us. He is patient and is gentle, allowing the struggle to go on until we are brought to the end of ourselves, truly trusting him. God, I can forgive who hurt me because I know that you are ultimately the God of justice, not me. And that pain and justice will either be satisfied on the cross of Christ or in your eternal condemnation. What is my wrath and justice compared to yours? To give Jacob a tangible demonstration of his own weakness, God dislocates his hip with just a touch as a display of his ultimate power and even still his grace. Because we see grace in God's wounding. This wound showed the incredible power of God and the weakness of his own flesh. Jacob was completely dependent on God. It is not his own plans and schemes that will eliminate his fear and distress. It will be this God who is the true embodiment of power. So much grace is found here. God will allow us to be graciously wounded as a beautiful reminder of the exact same lesson. Have you ever considered the biblical idea, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? That might include wounding. It most likely will include wounding. These wounds may not be physical, but they can be seen in the dense gravity of a person who has experienced great fear and distress, but still possess a deep joy of one who has walked through it and been delivered from it solely by the powerful hand of God. As day begins... Day begins to break, and Jacob is no longer wrestling, but the connotation is he's more clinging now. No one may look at the face of God and live. Jacob asks, let me see see your face. And the Lord says, no, let me go. Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob, recognizing the superiority of the man, he continues to cling. Imagine just hanging on him now. Dislocated hip, exhausted from all night wrestling. And refusing, Jacob is refusing to let this man go until he is blessed by him. The same Jacob who cunningly stole Esau's blessing by deceiving his father, now seeks the approval and blessing of his divine opponent, and now he realizes, I can't scheme for it. I can only desperately cling until I get it. And the Lord asks Jacob his name. Tell me your name. Not to get information, but as an opportunity for him to surrender. See, in the context of revealing one name is both an act of giving power to the other person and of a way of revealing your true identity. So Jacob obeys his superior, and he admits, my name is Jacob. It's almost a moment where the the name Jacob literally means deceiver. It's like he is clinging now, going, I'm a deceiver. 
I'm a schemer. I'm a supplanter. It's almost as if the wounding is continuing, not only in his body, but now it goes deeper than that. Jacob comes face to face with who he really is. And at this moment, he's hobbling, he's clinging, he's exhausted, and a humbled man by now. However, in the lowness of this moment, we see grace in God's newness. Verse 28, the man says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God redeems Jacob for himself. He is no longer a deceiver, no longer a schemer, no longer a supplanter. He is given a new name with a new identity that was given by God himself. He is now Israel, the man from whom all God's descendants will descend and is named. There is debate about the exact meaning of the name Israel, but many gospel-centered commentators contend, especially in the context of chapter 32, that the name Israel means God will rule or let God rule. See, up to this point, Jacob has sought to be in control of his own life, now brought to an end to himself, clinging to the one who is infinitely greater. Jacob has struggled with men and prevailed. He has struggled with God as well and prevailed, not because he overcame God, but because he surrendered to God. To this God, Jacob and all his descendants will be ruled by their Lord, who continue to wrestle for and with them throughout history. And so as the chapter draws to a close, Jacob asks his assailant his name, but it will not be given. Now is not the time for God to disclose his name. This will occur much longer in the future when God reveals his name to Moses. However, he does bless Jacob. How he blessed him, we're not really sure. But the bestowal of the blessing is done verbally, and we know that Jacob was blessed by God himself, and he finally received the approval and the blessing he'd always fought to get. Whatever is said, however the final moments occurred, we don't know, but something happened for Jacob to be in total awe, realizing he had been contending with God himself, and he names the place where it occurred Peniel, which means face of God, declaring, for I have seen God's face, and yet my life has been delivered. And with that, the sun rose, the Lord was gone, and Jacob was left to meet Esau with a limp, because God's grace leaves us forever changed. God's grace is seen in his coming. And all of this is pointing toward the moment when he came in the person of Jesus Christ, who came to redeem us from our greatest need, our greatest fear and distress. He came as a man and fought sin, death, and Satan on behalf of his people. He gave up his life on a cross and died so that his people would not have to. He rose again from the grave three days later, showing that he does have the power to save his people from our greatest enemy of sin and death, and that this Savior is trustworthy to not only save us, but trustworthy with our entire lives as well. What does your wrestling look like? Are you here today struggling with temptations, fears, distress, hurts, something else? Like Jacob, is there still a lot of you in you? You pray, but then you go back to scheming, planning, worrying, and not sleeping. God will be patient with you. 
He will be patient with you. He will be gentle with you. But he will wrestle with you. In fact, he will be the aggressor in it, bringing you to the end of yourself. But this is so you find newness in his gracious wounding, so that his grace leaves you forever changed, living not as the one who rules your own life, but the one where God truly rules your life. Because in this weakness, in this surrender, we actually find our strength. Will you surrender? If not, is God truly your God? Because of lack of surrender would declare he's not. Don't reject him. Don't reject the maker of heaven and earth. Don't think he has it out to harm and destroy you when we are in the age of mercy. His desire is to redeem you fully. Father in heaven, let's... We want to come just for a moment and reflect. God, all of us wrestle somehow and in some way And, oh, God, I pray that you would give us patience. That, God, if there's any prosperity gospel that lies within us, that having faith in you means that everything's great and everything is wonderful and we never walk through suffering and hardship, oh, God, help us to be free of that ridiculousness and actually see the power and beauty of what the scriptures actually teach and how you walk with us through it. That God, you will graciously allow us to come to the end of ourselves so that we can truly find life in your perfect, eternal, indestructible life. May we not run from the wrestling, but God, may we learn in the midst of the wrestling. Thank you that Jesus came and wrestled our greatest enemy for us that we can find life and salvation and forgiveness in his name. And may all of us fully surrender to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
bread and get the juice. 